Hey Icon and Bay City, it is uh, good to be with you today and uh, before you ask and before you notice, I gotta tell you, uh, my eyes don't look great. And so if you're wondering like, gosh, did he not get a lot of sleep or has he been, you know, whatever, like no, uh, I got LASIK last week, which is like a total game changer and uh, best thing ever, but there's some lingering uh, eye bruising, uh, we'll call it. So hope that doesn't distract you. Uh, I tried to put makeup on it, but that didn't work. And so anyway, that's why my eyes look a little weird today. Hopefully I'll be back to normal for next week. But we are continuing in our series, Father Abraham, Life Lessons for Growing Up. And I just wanna recap the series a little bit and reframe because for us at least, this is not a kind of a normal sermon series. Like we tend to go through books of the Bible and, and talk about Jesus and, and what uh, that means for our lives and for eternity and all those kinds of things. Um, and so often, I think Christianity and Christians misses out on all the Bible has to say about just practical life lessons for growing up. And I think the Old Testament in particular and, and stories like the life of Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and others just give us really raw and really honest versions of what it looked like for them to grow up, to learn, uh, for God to walk with them through their sin, through their foolishness, through their victories, through their obedience, through all the ups and downs of life. And so this series is meant to be kind of super practical life lessons for growing up, but to be able to still see it from a gospel perspective. And actually, I think what we find is that uh, the what I call the, the kind of flow of life or the kind of groove that life has, like the way in which God created the world to be um, is actually very much just kind of flows out of our convictions about the gospel. And so those things can become very, very practical. And I think we're going to see that especially here today. So this week, uh, the kind of life lesson for growing up is take responsibility for the people around you. Okay, so what we're going to see in this uh, passage is two stories uh, that follow the same structure. Okay, so it's stories about Abram and his nephew Lot, right? So Lot's dad was Abram's brother. Uh, his dad died and Abram kind of took him under his wing. In fact, in that famous calling story in Genesis chapter 12, it says that Abram obeyed God and followed God and he took Lot with him. So really from the very beginning of Abram's story, we see him taking responsibility for his nephew Lot. Even though he didn't have to, he did. He took responsibility for him, took him and all his family and all his stuff with him on his journey. And so we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, and we're going to see this structure, the same structure, play out in two different stories. And the structure is this. Lot has a problem, Abraham has a solution, and then God responds to Abraham's solution. So Lot's problem, Abraham's solution, God's response. We'll see this happen two times. So first, Lot's first problem, Genesis chapter 13, verses one through eight. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt. Remember, this is like 10 minutes after Abram turned over Sarai, his wife, uh, to Pharaoh in an attempt to get out of his own death, basically. And so the story just continues. God's faithful. God's with them, not because Abram's great, but because God's great. So they leave Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with them into the Negev. 
Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. So actually Abram's done a big circle here, right? Between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Okay, so here's the problem. Uh, Lot's got a bunch of stuff and a bunch of family and a bunch of people. Abram's got a bunch of stuff and a bunch of family and a bunch of people. They're both fairly wealthy. Huge problem, right? Problem we're always dealing with. Too much money, too many things, not enough space, right? So there's like a scarcity of space issue going on here. And the herdsmen, the people kind of at the bottom of the hierarchy, are starting to fight with one another for space, fighting for room to be able to take the sheep out and the goats and, you know, whatever that is, right? On top of that, there are Canaanites and Perizzites in the land, which means that there is not only scarcity, but there are enemies in the land. There's danger, right? So the stakes are pretty high here, right? Like they've been traveling a long time. They've been to Egypt. That did not turn out well. They go back to where they started. They've got too big a family, too much stuff to fit in the land. And now they've got a decision to make, right? And Abram's in charge. He's the patriarch of the family, and so he gets to decide what happens here. So Lot's first problem is he's in a bind where his family and Abram's family are too big for this space, and Lot's got to know Abram's in charge. So Abram gets to decide what the solution to this problem is. And before we get to what Abram's solution is, I, I want us to just stop for a second and consider what our solution might be, right? We've got a, a resource issue here. We've got a power issue here. Both of these families, though relatively large, are still surrounded by cities. They're surrounded by enemy peoples. They're surrounded by all kinds of things that are a, a danger to them. And they're living in tents, man. I mean, they, they don't have land. They don't have a home. They don't have a wall. They're just trying to make their way. So there's, there's real danger here. And Abram's got to figure out what to do. He's got to figure out how can I make the best for my family? And technically, Lot's not part of the family. I mean, sure, he's a nephew, but that's not Abram's first line of responsibility. So we've got kind of a scarcity of resources. We've got a power struggle here, and we've got a decision to make on the part of Abram, right? And I just want to put ourselves in this position for a minute. And I, I tried to do that this week, and I, I found that trying to imagine some valley where me and my, my flocks are, and you know my nephew's there with his flocks, and there's just flocks everywhere, uh, that, that like, I, I don't know, I don't know how to figure that out, right? But what I can relate to is a, a, a kind of moment where there is a decision to make about who gets what, right? There are limited resources, there's limited power, 
Not everybody's going to get what they want, right? There are enemies threatening our well-being, and we have to respond in that situation. I mean, ultimately, it's kind of a political situation in the broadest sense of the word, right? It's about resources. It's about power. It's about scarcity. And what do we do in the midst of that, right? Do we uh, kind of go every man for himself and you just grab what you can grab? Does Abram pull rank here and go, well, I'm the patriarch, so I get first choice. This is what I'm going to do. And good luck, Lot. Right? Does he kind of passively, aggressively just kind of do nothing and, and get tied up until the herdsmen start fighting and warring and it just gets out of control and everybody loses? Right? I mean, there's, there's a couple of options. Maybe Abram could just say, Lot, you just, you take the best area and, and I'll be fine. And then kind of like turn to bitterness over time because he didn't really want Lot to do. He just kind of thought that was the best thing to say in the moment. Right? So how do we, when we're in positions of leadership, or when we're in positions of influence, or when we're in positions of responsibility, respond to situations like this one? We're going to see how Abram responded in verse 9. So he goes to Lot and says, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. This is important. Abram's able to identify there's a higher value here, man. Like, there's something that matters more than just this kind of resource, power, scarcity, enemies kind of situation. What matters more is that we're family, right? We're, we're kinsmen. That's got to matter more. So let's not fight. Let's figure this out. Here's the solution. This is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, the garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, in case you were wondering. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men from Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. A little, little teaser there, a little foreshadowing there in that last verse. But here's what happened. Abram goes, listen, Lot, we're family. I want to take responsibility for you. I've taken responsibility from you ever since, uh, ever since your dad died, right? Like took you into my house. I brought you with me on this journey. And now I want to take responsibility for your well-being again. And I'm going to give you first choice. And he says something kind of interesting, right? He says, let's separate. He uses that word separate two times. And if that strikes you as familiar, there's some real Genesis 2 vibes going on here of God telling the man that he needs to leave, that he needs to separate from his father and mother and cling to his wife, right? Like this is a coming of age moment. It's a transition moment. Even though Lot's married, he's got a family, he's got resources, he has been living under the wing of Abram at this point. And Abram, like a father, father Abraham, right? More foreshadowing. 
uh, goes, listen, dude, it is time for you to separate from me and go be your own man. It's time to move out of the house and, and go be your own guy. Now, what's interesting to note is Lot at this point is probably 50 years old, right? Because we know at the beginning of the story, Abram's 75, and it says that Lot was Abram's brother's son. So like, let's be generous and say his, his brother's son was 25 when he had Lot. So he's probably 50 years old, right? So for some of you who are like not yet growing up, he probably still have some time, right? Like Lot was 50, so you're good. But this is a moment right? Where Abram goes, man, it's time for you to grow up and be your own man. And in order to do that, I am going to give you the choice to either go east or west. You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. It's your choice. Because not only did Abram want Lot to grow up, he wanted him to succeed. He wanted him to thrive. So he goes, listen, man, I want to set you up for success. So wherever you think is best for you, that, take it. I'll, I'll figure it out. Like I, I'm a grown man. I'm 75 at this point. Like I can figure this thing out on my own. You're more vulnerable. You've never been out on your own. So you get the first pick. Man, this is, this is Abram taking responsibility, not just for Lot and his family, but for his future. And Abram saying, listen, I, I want you to thrive. I want you to succeed. I want you to grow like a father wants to see his son and daughter grow. And so he releases him. Abe's solution for Lot's problem is, Lot, you get first pick of the land and I'll figure it out, right? And it, and it seems like Lot chooses well. He looks out over the valley, says, man, the Jordan Valley is well watered. There's some cities. There's this place called Sodom, which maybe he didn't know was bad news. But anyway, he's going towards the city. He sees the resources and he makes a good choice. And, you know, incidentally, like that, that takes a fair bit of humility and kind of personal responsibility on Lot's part to own that decision, to accept the generosity of his uncle. And, and go in that direction, choose the best way. I mean, I, I know plenty of young men who might kind of balk at that opportunity and go, hey, I don't, need your, I don't need your help, I don't need your pity, I don't need your generosity, I can figure it out. But that's not what Lot does. He goes, yeah, man, Uncle Abraham, that's super generous of you, and I'm gonna go this way. This seems like the best way, it seems like it sets me up for my future, and there's, there's some humility there, there's some personal responsibility on Lot's part that I think we can learn a lot from, okay? Now, here's what I want us to see in this third part, God's response. Because when I first started preparing this message, this was not kind of in my view, that, that there was going to be this pattern of Lot's problem, Abraham's solution, and God's kind of reaffirmation and response. But I actually think it's pretty core to us being able to live out the life of Abram. So, verse 14 says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. See, God chose this moment to reiterate his promise to Abram. 
I mean, he kind of just says the same thing that he had said in Genesis 12 when he called Abram to go, right? But now he's shown him where. We, we made a big deal about this in the first week of this series, that when God came to Abram and said, go from your father's house, from your family, from your kindred, all of this, he told him exactly where to go from, but he said, go to the land that I will show you. Just go that way and I'll tell you when to stop, basically. Well, here's the where. Right? Like they're there. God goes, hey, Abram, just so you know, we're here. Right? We had this little kind of U-turn in Egypt. That did not go well. This is, this, is, this is your future, man. Look north, look south, look east, look west. It's all yours. This is where your family is going to be. Now, why does God do this now? What, why this moment? Right? He'd already been in this area. Why didn't God do that the first time? And, you know, ultimately, I don't know. But... Consider this, right? We can choose to take responsibility for the people around us, even at great cost to ourselves, only if we believe that God has a plan for us, that God will provide for us, and that God's planned provision cannot be thwarted by our sin or stupidity, as we saw in, in Abraham's story in the last chapter nor can it be kind of manipulated or bribed by our obedience. Like maybe some in, in, in kind of the, uh, some, some theological corners that would say, hey, if you obey God, God must do good things for you. Man, it just doesn't work that way, right? Abram did something stupid, God stayed with him. God, Abram does something good, God stays with him. Not because of Abram, but because of God. Right? And so I wonder if God comes and reaffirms this covenant here in this moment to kind of tell Abram, listen, you can continue to take responsibility for the people around you. You can take responsibility for Lot, like at no good end to yourself. Like all Abram did was sacrifice the, the kind of critical mass that might protect him in the future, sends Lot to the good part of the valley at cost to himself. The only reason Abram can do that, the only reason then we can do that, is if we're convinced that God's got us, that God's gonna care for us, that God's always gonna provide for us, that our hope for the future is not in our wisdom and not in our good decisions, but in God's provision. That stability gives us the confidence to be able to be generous and to sacrifice and to see our lives as an opportunity to take responsibility of those around us. If we have primarily a scarcity mindset that says, gosh, resources are scarce, there's enemies all over the place, we need power, we need influence, and we're looking horizontally for those things, whether that's in culture or politics or money or people or whatever, as long as there's this kind of scarcity mindset that just goes, what's here is, is, is just, there's like a zero-sum version of this deal, and I gotta fight for what's mine, we will never take responsibility for the people around us. But if we can hear God's reaffirmation with Abram here and, and hear God go, listen, no matter, no matter what you do, I got it. Like there's nothing so dumb, no mistake you can make that's so dumb, nor some great decision you make that's so good that can change what I'm going to do. I'm with you. So just be obedient. Walk with me. Take care of people because I'm going to take care of you. Right? So that's story number one. 
And I want us to pretty quickly look at story number two. Uh, Chapter 14, verses 1 through 13. And I I thought about reading this whole section, but I cannot pronounce uh, 86% of the names in this section. And so I'm just going to skip to the end and just tell you there's a war, right? Bunch of dudes who I can't pronounce their names attack a bunch of other dudes who I can't pronounce their names. And verse 12 gives us the relevant information. It says, they also took Lot, right? Took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. So there's a war in the area. All of these, these enemies that we've been talking about start fighting each other, right? One of them's name is Cheddar Lomer. Love that, right? But they start fighting each other and Lot kind of gets caught up into it. Maybe uh, foolish to get so close to Sodom because the king of Sodom is the guy who kind of loses this battle and Lot and his whole family and all his deal gets taken away. This is not Lot's fault, although, you know, might not have been the the wisest thing to get close to a place that uh, maybe he knew was wicked in the eyes of God and might have brought on some of this war, okay? So again, Lot's got a problem. This time he's been kidnapped. He and all of his people and all of his stuff have been stolen as a result of this war. And now this moment, this problem, might be kind of like emotionally easier for Abraham to engage because I mean, like Lot's life is on the line and everything's on the line. So there's probably something in Abraham who goes, yeah, like I'm gonna go fight for him. But, but also, with that greater uh, danger to Lot's life, there is a greater risk for Abram, right? In the first story, Abram tells Lot, hey, you go left, I'll go right, whatever. But he knows it's not like the left was this lush valley and the right was like a fiery desert or something like that, like, right? Like he had options. In this situation, the stakes are super high and the risk is super high. And yet... Abram chooses again to take responsibility. Verse 14. It says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. I don't think that's a guy named Dan who like just always stands in the same place. I'm pretty sure that's a place. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people, right? A couple interesting details here. The writer of this story is trying to, to really get us to understand what it is that Abram did, right? So it says he took 318 trained men. That doesn't sound like very many, right? Like the, if you can count the number down to the nearest man, you're, you probably don't have a great army, right? Like you just like got a lot of buddies. That's kind of in that, in that right, right between, I've got buddies who like to fight and I have an army, right? 318. So he gets all of his trained men and he chases him down. And I don't know exactly how far Dan was, but it seems like it's probably a ways because the writer wants us to know that, right? And then he splits his, his army. So now it's 318 divided by two. I'm not sure the math there, but it's, not, it's even less, right? And they attack by night and then they flee again. They goes as far as Hobar and then finally grabs Lot, brings them all the way back, right? The author wants us to see 
Abram is risking his life. He is not just kind of in theory taking responsibility for those around him. He's going, no, I am responsible and I'm going to act in such a way that, that, that rescues not just Lot himself physically, but he, he brings back everything. And that's not just like this amazing success story of Abram's really good fighter and brings back all the stuff, but this is a reiteration of the first story, right? The concern of Abram is not just for Lot's physical life and wants him to live. Abram still wants Lot to thrive. He still wants Lot to flourish. He still wants Lot to grow up and be successful and have a family and have a business and have a life. And so he knows, I can't just bring back Lot because that, then he's just a dude. And in this world, it's not enough to just be a dude. You need your family, you need your, your flocks, all your flocks, and you need all your stuff, you need all your possessions, you need all your guys, you need your life. And so he comes and rescues all of it. Again, not just taking responsibility for Lot's life, but Lot's future. This is, this is an incredible testimony to Abram's willingness to care for his nephew, Lot. He was invested in Lot's future flourishing and he risked his own life to do it. And again, God responds. Chapter 14, verse 17. It says, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlomer, love it, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, check what Melchizedek just said to him. First of all, great name, Melchizedek. Second of all, he reminds Abram two things. One, don't forget that it's God who is the possessor or creator, depending on the translation there. But I love that idea that he's the possessor. All of heaven and earth is possessed by God. And it was God who delivered your enemies into your hand. So he goes, you are blessed. Blessed be Abram. Clearly, you are blessed by God. God cares for you. God is loving you. God is blessing you. And then we need to return the blessing verbally at least to go, yeah, and God gets the credit for having delivered your enemies in your hands. In other words, Melchizedek goes, don't get cocky, man. God did this, right? Like, like a good pastor, Melchizedek wants to remind Abram really quickly, like, hey, this was great. You took responsibility for Lot. You went and saved him with your 318 buddies. That was really good. God obviously did that because 318 dudes against a couple of armies chasing them all the way to Dan and all the way to Hobar, right? Like that doesn't make sense. God clearly did this. Again, a reaffirmation of God's provision, God's protection, God's power. Okay. So in week one, if you remember, we looked at the verse in Romans 8, 31 and 32, which is, is kind of a theme verse for this whole series. In it, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? And he's just, just been talking about the gospel for the last eight chapters, been talking about the gospel. He says, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That, that is a, a critical thing to understand from this whole series and especially from this story. That Paul, I mean, centuries later, is going, listen, think about this. If God is for us, and he is, I mean, hear that. There, some of you need to just hear that and dwell on that for probably the next 10 years or so. That God is for you. His, his posture is towards you. I, I picture him doing to you and to me what I do to my kids. I was just in my office. My kids came in and surprised me. They're great. My littlest, whose name is Will, he's two. He had been woken up from a nap. And so he had that sweaty head, sweaty face, like his hair is like matted and he looks terrible, but amazing, right? Like, and I love him. And I, the, my first response is to go down and pick him up and, and be towards him and be for him and all of my kids that's my posture when they come near me i lean into them that's god's posture for you and paul goes man if that's true and the evidence of it is that he gave his son to die for you i mean what what more evidence do you need that god is for you he goes okay so if that's true one who can be against us what, what real enemies do you have? Like we have some kind of boogeyman enemies out there, the, them, those people, them who believe those things or think those things or on that side or in that party or whatever, those boogeyman people. But if God is for you, why are you afraid of them? What enemy do you actually have? What are you afraid of? What would make you hesitate to take responsibility for the good of those around you? If God is for you and has already proven that by sending his son, and Paul goes, listen, will he not with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Will he not always provide for us as we see with Abraham again and again and again? If all of that is true, what, what are you afraid of? Who, who is it that you think is so big and bad and powerful that they can, they can destroy everything? They could change the world. They could ruin, they could destroy your life. Who is that that could overwhelm God? So, so Paul reminds us what we see in Abraham's life here. The man, if, if God's for us and God's providing, God's protecting, God is the possessor of heaven and earth, and that God hands our enemies over to us, what would make us hesitate from, from taking responsibility for those around us at cost to ourselves, seeing our lives fundamentally as being for the sake of those around us? So I got three quick application points for us, and we'll wrap up. One. This isn't just Abraham taking care of his nephew, right? I mean, there's a, there's a way to look at this that goes, well, well yeah, like Abraham's taking care of Lot because it was like his nephew and it was his brother. It was probably his favorite brother. And, uh, and, and this is his son. And of course, he's going to take care of him. No, it's more than that. It's an extension of what Jesus calls the second greatest commandment, right? 
So in the Gospels, the Pharisees come to Jesus and go, what's the greatest commandment? And he goes, that's easy. It's the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he goes, ah, and as soon as, before they could say anything, he goes, and there's a second like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This idea, what Abram does for Lot, is simply an extension of that second greatest commandment. That we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. That, in fact, what it means to be an icon in a broken world where there is need all around us is to live a life that is fundamentally oriented towards the good of other people. That it is a self-giving life. That that's fundamental to who we are. And, and Jesus calls it the second most important thing in the world after loving God is loving others and taking responsibility for them. Okay, so this isn't just Abe and Lot. This is just an Old Testament example of what Jesus says is the second greatest commandment. Number two, and this is quick. But take responsibility for the people around you in real life. Don't, don't fight online battles. Don't, don't try to solve Twitter avatars' problems. Don't try to set people out there straight until everyone in your immediate vicinity is taken care of, okay? I think our responsibility starts near and moves outward. That we have to take responsibility for ourselves, much the same way Lot did. And then we take responsibility for those in our immediate vicinity, our family and our close friends. We take responsibility for our coworkers. We take responsibility for our actual neighbors, right? Like I often have people go, well, who's my neighbor, right? And I go, well, start with your neighbor, right? Like there's a place to start. Maybe, maybe not, but that seems easy, right? Start with your neighbor. Start with your neighborhood. Start with your city. And once yourself and your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and your city are taken care of, then it's your responsibility to set that guy on Twitter or girl because you don't know because it's just like an egg on Twitter and you're super concerned about them and their theology. Like take care of that one after yourself and your family and your friends and your neighbors and your city. Okay, then, then you're on it. Okay, lastly, I see a pattern here in this story that I think transcends the story and speaks actually to uh, the greater theme of the whole Bible, and I think we need to pay attention to it, right? So remember in story number one, Abe launches Lot out into the world, like a father uh, launching their child out into the world, setting him up for success, hoping for a better future. There is, a, there is kind of a creational sense to this story. Right? That he's, he's going, listen, leave your father and mother, cleave to your wife, make a way, make a life, go and be a man, Lot. And then the second story, Abraham rescues Lot and redeems him. And in fact, doesn't just rescue his life, but actually tries to restore fully the life that he initially creationally sent out. Right? So Abram is kind of taking on the pattern of God in our lives to go, listen, I'm going to equip you and I'm for you and I want to send you out for your greatest success and I'm going to sacrifice on my account to make you and to give to you and to care for you and provide for you. And then when you're in trouble and maybe it's not your fault, maybe it is your fault, but I am also going to rescue you back 
not just save your life, but rescue you back, restore you back to the person, to the life that I designed for you. That what we see Abram do, the responsibility he takes to look at the people around him and go, I want the best for you and I will work for that best is both creational in its outset and it's also redemptive in that he rescues him from sin, rescues him from the realities of a broken world. This is the pattern of what Jesus does for us over and over and over and over, restoring us back over and over to the people he created us to be. He does this once ultimately, in that he created us and called us and sent us, and then he did it once ultimately to redeem and restore our hearts and our lives. And then practically has to do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Because we continue to sin. He continues to pull us back and show us grace and bless us and care for us. This is the work of Christ in our lives. And it's because of the work of Christ in our lives that we can then follow the example of Abraham and take responsibility for the people around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful first and foremost that you have done this for us. It, it, that's where this has to start. I mean, we, we can be called to walk, called to care, called to take responsibility, but unless we, you have done that for us, we cannot do that for others. Like You are the first mover, and so I am forever grateful that you have moved in us. But God, I, I pray that you begin to open our eyes Open our eyes first and foremost to see your constant provision, that you are for us, and that we would become convinced that you are for us and become convinced that if you are for us, then there is nobody who can be against us. We have no real enemy because no enemy can stand against you. And if that were true, if we actually believed that, what would we do? How would we respond? How would we sacrifice for the good of someone around us? How could we take responsibility for others if actually the world was not a zero-sum game? If the resources and influence and power and grace were not scarce but were abundant? What if you were for us and therefore nobody could be against us? What would we do then? Lord, help us to see that, to hear that, to consider that, and then to move and respond to it. God, we are so grateful for your presence in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all, and we are His.